It's time for the April 8, 2020 edition of Weekly Signals Weekly Review. A personal recollection of the last 168 hours of history, broadcasting on Buddha's birthday from the University of California at Irvine in the backyard of KUCI 88.9 FM. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And as always, yes. the beast from whom all blessings flow, <laughs> Mahler, the fake news dog. Whoa, uh, Mahler. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Good on you, Mahler. You've sounded good today, Mahler. Today, mm-hmm. we'll be talking about the bird bot, a river's liver, marine snow, wired baseball, the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, meatballs, and then some. But first, do you have a favorite alcoholic beverage, Mike? The mm, Devil's Brew. The Devil's Brew. Nose paint. Mead. No. Mead. <laughs> Angel's milk. <laughs> Golden nectar. I, you know. Alcohol. Uh, Tonsil varnish. <laughs> Demon rum. Demon rum. I do not anymore. At one time, I might have said beer, but beer, beer. I'm not Brett Kavanaugh beer, but beer, beer. I liked it at one point like in my beer. life. Beer. Yeah. Now it's an occasional glass of some kind of wine, but yeah. otherwise, I don't. I no. I don't. Uh, I tried scotch for a while. Scotch. I tried to learn to like scotch. I gave really? it. An, I gave it a shot. I when was like this? It. Oh God, years ago. I, I mean, my my alcohol consumption days are way past. Did you have a Scotch collection? No, I just tried it. It was like I tried Cuddy <laughs> Sark. It was a day. Yeah, a couple of Cuddy days. Sark. I tried it for a couple of days. No, I just, uh, just every <laughs> afternoon you'd have a little <laughs> a little afternoon. Boom. Little as my uh, I had an uncle who used to get it. He was a drunk or an alcoholic. Sorry. Ah yes. And he used to, he used to every night, apparently, I wasn't around him that much, but he used to apparently say he just needed a teeny tiny. Oh, Meaning yes. he just needed a little uh-huh. shot, and yeah. teeny tiny turned into bigger and better. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so there you go. <sighs> no, how about yourself? Do you have a favorite libation, adult libation? Uh, beer. Beer, yeah. Everything else tastes like poison <laughs> to me. It's <laughs> a good point. It does. Yeah. Yeah, from the American Association for the Advancement of Science <laughs> newsletter, a new study of black-handed spider monkeys in Panama shows that they seek out and eat fruit that makes them drunk. Mm-hmm. A lot of animals do that. Yeah. Yeah. Elephants do it. Human animals. Birdies do it. Birdies do it. Every, yeah. It's fermented. Mm-hmm. And it gives you more uh, calories that way. Mm-hmm. Measurement shows that some fruits known to be eaten by primates have a naturally high alcohol content of up to 7%. Mm. That's like a strong beer. Yeah, that's a, yeah. The study shed light on the theory that humans getting drunk may have roots in our ancient ancestors' love of eating fermented fruit. According to the drunky monkey hypothesis, our attraction to booze started millions of years ago when our ape and monkey ancestors discovered that the scent of alcohol led them to ripe fermenting and nutritious fruit. Yeah, 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 it would. In the new study, researchers collected urine from free-ranging black-handed spider monkeys. And who hasn't seen some (laughs) free-handed or free-ranging black-handed spider monkeys? And they found the urine contained secondary metabolites of alcohol, meaning that the animals were utilizing the alcohol for energy. 
yeah. you know, the secondary process there. It wasn't just passing through their bodies. Okay. Fermenting fruit has more calories, as I said, than unfermented fruit, and the higher calories mean more energy. That makes there sense. That does make sense. Now, it's been quite a number of years since I consumed too much alcohol, but I do remember the rush of adrenaline and energy you would have in those first half hours. 30 seconds. 30 seconds, but about a half hour's worth of, you just wanted to tear your clothes off and run around the house, you know, that kind of feeling that you have. Because you think you're you're invincible and that you can do things that you, you can't. And I can imagine that that would manifest itself in the monkey. Hmm. A little bit, don't you think? Don't you think oh, yeah, be a yeah. Little bit I, of I, I don't remember unf- wanting to run around the house, but yes. Don't you, you remember that kind of rush that you would get? And you'd, you know, I don't know, if you jumped up on the roof and started pounding your chest well, or anything. I think that, maybe you know? maybe I'm, I'm allergic to it or something. Okay. Well, I never, I mean, I felt drunk. Yeah. I've seen double. But. That kind of stuff. Okay. Well, you know? yeah, okay. But. You never passed is, out from drinking? But I. Uh, no, I haven't. I, haven't yeah, I did. I did one time, and that scared me. Yeah, I did well, one. Yeah. Time. yeah, I yeah. mean, I didn't. Yeah, I did. I passed out. Where were you when you? Passed I was out? in. The, I was in. A, um, at a party, yeah. and I was in my car, mm-hmm. and I fortunately had the sense not to drive my car anywhere. Yeah. But I remember lying in the front seat, across the front seat, opening yeah. the passenger door and uh-huh. dispensing of what I had eaten. Yeah. And then passed out very quickly after. I just with my the door open. Yeah, yeah. Who There's, found you? Or you just woke I, up? I don't know who yeah. found me. I don't know. It was awful. <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, it was yeah. It was just one time. Uh, I do remember. I remember not to forget. Did you ever want to be a librarian? Yeah. You did. I think it's a cool thing. Yeah. I really would love to be a librarian, actually. Well, there's still time. Well, I guess there is. But yeah, be a I librarian. Like, some yeah. of my best friends are librarians. Yeah, what a great environment. Yeah. Quiet. Shh. Yeah. You have time to Ooh, That's what you'd like to do, huh? Shh. Yeah, yeah I do that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you'd, maybe you'd just be the husher. You walk around. That's what you are. Here he yeah. comes. Yeah. The husher's coming. Yeah. yeah. Shh. They, they teach you how to do That's part of the degree. I would imagine there maybe. is a protocol or a, uh, a, a, a non-confrontational way of doing that librarians have kind of wired. Don't you think? They, yeah, they don't come out and say, <laughs> shut up! They don't do that. They'll come at uh, you with a hairbrush and screaming. If you, one more, one hairbrush. more word out of you. Yeah. No. From the BBC, yeah. speaking of monkeys, yeah. two stolen notebooks written by Charles Darwin were, were mysteriously returned to Cambridge University 22 years after they were last seen. The small leather-bound books are worth millions of pounds, because we're in England here. Mm-hmm. Right? and include Darwin's Tree of Life sketch. The return comes 15 months after the BBC announced they had gone missing and the library launched a worldwide appeal to find them. It's unknown who returned the two postcard-sized notebooks. They were left anonymously in a bright pink gift bag containing the original blue box the notebooks were kept in and a plain brown envelope. Yeah. On it was printed a short message. Librarian, Happy Easter, X. I mean, it came before Easter, but, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, you're not going to argue. 
The package had been left on the floor in a public part of the library with no security cameras outside of Dr. Jessica Gardner's, the head librarian's office. The notebook dates, uh, the notepads date from the late 1830s after Darwin had returned from the Galapagos Islands. On one page, he drew a spindly sketch of a tree which helped inspire his theory of evolution and more than 20 years later would become a central theory in his groundbreaking work on the origin of the species. I'm joyous, said Dr. Gardner. <laughs> they haven't been handled much They've clearly been looked after with care wherever they've been. Hmm. I think now, it was an inside job, Nathan. I think she did it. Well, there you go. I think she's just putting on an act here. Yeah, what yeah. she do? She puts this little bag in front of her office. Right. It, she it, knows where the security cameras there you are. Go. There's the tip right, right there. Yeah. She finds them. You know, she was holding them at home because mm -hmm. she's a librarian there. Mm -hmm. She was so excited about these books, and she just wanted to, I don't know, maybe hold them tightly. Yes. She had a she had an affection for the books, uh -huh. and she was doing this a lot at home. Shh, yeah. don't Shh. tell anybody about the books I borrowed from the library. And she this was is, talking to the books. She was talking. Don't yeah. tell anybody where Shh. you were. Don't sh don't tell anybody. Yeah. This is the other thing about the cool thing about a library. Uh -huh. You you can do that. That's kind of in their culture to return things without saying anything. Oh yeah. You just put them in that box, that mail yeah. slot, and if you never go back to that library, you probably never have to pay the the fine for being late, right? So they and they don't care. I don't think that they could check well, out. Well, I, no, I'm not saying these notebooks. But in the culture yeah. of the library yeah, world, uh -huh. it's cool. You walk up. Yeah, I've had this for two years. Throw it in there. Two years. Well, I'm just saying. I'm, I'm just saying. If you had a book, you forgot I think you had two it. Two weeks. Two weeks. But okay, maybe, let's maybe two weeks. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. And and they they don't. Nobody runs up to you and says, you know, narks you out or yeah. you know, says, you know, hands on the air. You know, well, spread them. You, you check out something and you, then you bring it back yeah. and you don't even need to look at anybody. You put it in a slot. Right. Exactly. And it's nobody's asking of. you questions. Yeah. Where where's this book been? Yeah. You know where you been? Yeah. You know. I mean, they don't know where you're taking <laughs> they it to read. Have no idea. That's a cool. It's a and that's yeah. It's, that's a cool story. I'm glad it happened. If this news makes you joyous, may I recommend a donation to KUCI to keep the ball rolling? Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air, commercial free. Freeform, free speech radio, KUCI, 88.9 FM. From Science Daily. Birds are laying their eggs a month earlier than normal, and eggshell evidence points the finger at the climate crisis. Average egg-laying dates have moved up by nearly a month for 72 species of birds in the upper Midwest of the United States. Bodies of these shorebirds are actually shrinking, and global warming is the cause. Overall, the birds lay dates, lay dates, I guess that's what they call it. Mm -hmm. They're lay date. Lay dates. Overall, the birds' lay dates advance by an average of 25.1 days, with less shift for resident species and a wider shift for short and long distant migrants, hmm. migratory birds. Mm -hmm. The researchers found that changes in temperature approximated using carbon dioxide dated data from over the years affected birds laying patterns. The temperature shift affects everything from bird food to bird habitats and can place birds 
in unexpected competition with one another for insects and other food sources. The earlier and warmer springs that accompany human-caused climate change can effectively strand birds that are born earlier than when their traditional food sources become available. That's no good. No, no, it's not. I don't like that at all. This, the, yeah, these are the kind of uh, unforeseen impacts of climate damage in our world. Things that will unfold that we kind of had a broad outline of th- how it would impact certain species, certain behaviors, but we don't know until it starts to happen, and this is probably a pretty yep. good example of that. Yeah. That makes me sad. Makes me sad, too, especially birds. Is there a more benign species well, <laughs> out there? Well, I mean, generally. I mean, yeah, there, are, yeah. there are some that aren't, but, but generally they sing and they fly around and they yeah. lay eggs and they eat insects. Yeah, I got a couple up in yeah. my um, porch area. They yeah. go in the rafters there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have it blocked off in front of the door so they can't get in. I've had it blocked off, but this year I didn't block it off, and I, I don't know if they remembered or what, but they're, but the birds are going away from the door now. So you go outside, every once in a while you get dive-bombed, <laughs> but yeah. it's not, there's no threat. Yeah. Who was your first robot? Oh, my first robot that I owned? No, no, no just, just do you remember? remember. Yeah. First robot I remember, well, the, the easy one is the robot from Lost in Space. Lost in I don't space. think oh, I... B9. S- is that what it was? That B9? Was B9. I, you know, like it, the word, you know, yeah, B9. Yeah, B9. Okay. Passive. Yeah, I think that, I mean, otherwise it would have been uh, like that, what's that, Forbidden Planet? What's the one yeah. where, is that the... Forbidden ro- Planet was yeah. Robbie the ro- robot. Ro- yeah, yeah, that would probably be the first one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the real robotish voice. Yeah, you know. yeah. yeah. You are an idiot, <laughs> that type of thing. Yeah. Then there's Gort. Remember that? Klaatu, Baranka, oh, Nikto. That's the one I'm thinking the of. The day that, the earth stood still. That, that's the yeah. one. Yes, yes, yes. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Wally. Wally. The new one. Yeah. yeah. Wally was R2D2. Good... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, from Science Robotics Magazine. <laughs> Birds make better bipedal bots than humans do. Say that again. Birds yeah. make better bipedal bots okay. than humans do. Okay. All right. So if you if you are making a robot, yeah. make it like a bird. Like like a bird, that makes sense. Yeah. A new machine called BirdBot balances walking efficiently and speed. Up until now, most robots were built with legs mimicking humans. Yeah. You know, like Robbie the robot. Yeah. Or Gort. <laughs> yes. The trouble was not that most biologists do not describe animal autonomy in engineering-friendly terms. It's not their goal to build a robot, said Alexander Barty Sprowitz, who works at the Max Planck Institute for Intelligent Systems in Stuttgart, Germany. Uh. It's a bit frustrating for me as an engineer because I need certain types of information. This guy's an engineer, and he's looking at birds, but like he's saying, they don't describe animal anatomy in engineering-friendly terms. When he was offered a uh, postdoctoral position at Royal Veterinary College in England, uh, Mr. Sprowitz, uh, got, got him thinking about how to use our understanding of locomotion in animals to develop more agile robots. This combination of veterinary experience and hard robotics paid off with the bird bot. 
a bipedal machine that can that may one day explore terrains like dense forests mm -hmm. where wheeled or treaded robots cannot move. Mm -hmm. Like humans, birds have muscles and tendons that stretch over multiple joints, forming a pulley-like structure that can automatically move the connected bones in certain ways. But unlike human legs, which max out at having two joints connected this way, mm -hmm. a bird's limb muscles and tendons can span up to five joints. Wow. Yeah, five joints. BirdBot uses a five-joint network that mimics the leg motion of flightless birds, such as an ostrich, as it runs in the wild. There you go. You mean there you go? What are you looking for? I was looking at You're looking at robots. C three PO. C three PO. That's now, a little the, yeah, Star Wars one. Star Wars, yeah. and that gives you a, an example of how inefficient it is to model a robot. With those two human, little human. human that's, that he doesn't even have a knee. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's he kind just of a, has rollers. Yeah. No, no. I'm talking about. The, oh, the big guy. Oh, the, yeah, yeah, the tall guy. Because he. Who is the little guy? Uh, that's uh, that's R two D two. R two D two. That's C three PO. Okay, got my. And, got my and, Star Wars robot. Yeah, and he was awkward and gangly and yeah. inefficient. Yeah. That's exactly a good example of that. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Uh, with a five-jointed uh, muscle network, a bird does not have to signal each muscle independently. It move, simply moves one, and the whole system fires. I didn't know that. I didn't know it's that. It's kind of like the puppet master controlling everything from the top. The arrangement eliminates the need for a lot of complicated balance and pressure sensors in BirdBot's legs. This makes the robot sleeker, easily scalable in size, and about 75% less power intensive compared with similar size human-looking robots. I think that's oh, there. it. Yeah. I think it's a pretty good deal. Yeah, me too. I like it. Yeah. yeah. What about a dog bot? That's what he's saying. Well, You've seen all those four-legged dogs. Yeah, dog that's bots. what I was going to say. Those are pretty darn efficient. They're using those for military Yeah, purposes. well, dogs might have competition <laughs> yeah, with these bird true. bots out yeah. there. Nothing can replace Mahler. Yeah, Come on. Yeah, yeah. Never. Yeah, Mahler. Oh, You're the best. Remember our female alpha monkey report from a couple months ago? I do. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, last this is what happened. Last year, Yaki was her name, uh -huh. a nine-year-old female Japanese macaque monkey fought several other macaques right. to become the alpha of her troop. That's right. That made Yaki the first known female troop leader in the history of Takasakayama Natural Zoological Garden in southern Japan, which is the home to over a thousand macaques. And it was a big deal for them. Yeah. They've been in business uh -huh. for over 50 years there. Right. So this was unique. But during her first breeding season as queen, which began in November of 2021, just last year, yeah. a few months ago, right before we reported it, and just concluded last month, okay. her reign, or her first breeding season, mm -hmm. I should say, mm -hmm. March of 2022, a messy love triangle threatened to grip her grip, <laughs> threatened her grip on power. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Kind of a love triangle huh? yeah. thing going on. And this from the New York Times, yeah. the update on Yaki, with her reign intact. Yaki, the nine-year-old macaque, played the field and mated with at least one male, while all while managing to maintain her status as her troop's alpha. Wow. Yeah. Japanese macaques are uh, uh, polyamorous. Oh, they, they get a... Yeah. They're... they're 
multiple multiple mates. mates and scientists were <clears throat> worried that Yaki would not be able to maintain her status while pursuing and rejecting potential mates yeah tensions run high during breeding season and a challenge from a spurned male could easily rob Yaki uh, an average size female of her rank but Yaki had many social allies after becoming alpha in the troop which made her position stable wow yeah Apparently, social smarts are more important than physical strength for Japanese macaques. So, Yaki uh, is queen. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Long live Yaki. Yeah, she, she's my queen. Yeah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> You're a queen. She could be. Yeah. yeah. Not yours. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I don't think that'll happen. Yeah, I could. Yeah. You never know. You can have it all. <sighs> you ever meet a monkey? <laughs> no, I've never met a monkey. I, mean, I don't think I've like... ever been in a room or in a confined space with a monkey. I, I can't think of a time. A confined space? Do you mean well, you like... Know, like in a... I, I don't know if I've ever... I must have seen them in the zoo, but I don't really remember it. Yeah. yeah. Have you? When I was at Lion Country. Oh, okay. The, the, uh, the handlers were... used to yeah. let us kind of get close enough to them where you felt... Here you in know, Irvine, they, touch they, them Lion Country Safari, yeah. right, yeah. The most famous monkey at Lion Country would, would sit on th in this place called Monkey Island, okay. which was inside where people could walk around, not in the main part where they drove through. Yeah. You got in your car and you drove through uh, areas where they fenced off, well, elephants in one section right. and cheetahs in another right. and lions right. in another. It was all kind of crazy. But in the uh, main part there on Monkey Island, yeah. This little monkey would get up and sit up on the tallest tree and masturbate. <laughs> so he was quite popular with the crowd. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bet he was, yeah. <laughs> the dream of every red-blooded American man. Uh, uh, by the way, uh, he was He was kind of the Louis C.K. of monkeys. He was kind of living, living yeah. the dream a little bit. But, uh, but, uh, but did you think that was a good idea? Hey, you've been through it. I never did. did what, Lion Country Safari? Yeah, did you think, I mean... Upon, I don't think upon reflection, maybe it's no, different no, than no. when you did at the time. Oh, right? when I was just going for a job at that point. Okay. And it was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you ever think of? I mean, think about the uh, the film um, franchise, Jurassic Park. Yeah. It had to have been inspired in some manner by Lion Country oh, yeah. Safari. Exactly. Those kinds of places. Yeah. They, they had yeah. several at the time. I don't know if they still have yeah. any. There's one down in uh, closer to San Diego. I can, what's that called? Uh, uh, Wild Kingdom. Okay. Something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't make any difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us on the web at KUCI.org, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9, on our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at KUCIFM. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I love the way Mahler just tails off. Yeah. He's pretty excited at the beginning yeah, of that. Yeah, that yeah. And, and then, then and he just kind of, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, well, okay. I, I, I wasn't criticizing you. I was just, yeah. you know, kind of making an observation. That's all. Yeah. You know, I, I asked you this before, but at the Los Angeles River, you know how they, yeah. they 
they just cemented the whole thing in. In the 30s and 40s, they yeah. just poured tons of cement into the river. And it went, they were reacting. It was, yeah, exactly, in the 30s and 40s because they had a huge flood in the oh, early 30s. That's right. Uh, that just really kind of decimated a lot of neighborhoods. Right. Uh, and so they just confined all the water channels mm -hmm. and put in the sewer system and all that. But it took away something from from what we can do with water. It took away a lot of groundwater, for one thing. Yeah. May I, may I offer an, an also another reason why they did that uh -huh. was because it was seen as an alternative <clears throat> route for the military to use in case of an emergency. So they were, would be able to navigate much of Los Angeles area by virtue of the flood control system because it was yeah. cemented over. That was I wonder if that was, though, a way for politicians to sell the idea, uh, much as they uh, prey on the fear of people and being at war in World War II right. when they were right. cementing a lot of the area over. Yeah, that's... People were complain about it, but then they could easily say, well, this is so our troops can protect you. Yeah. Yeah, that's that. That's a, yeah. Sounds logical. That's my Likely. cynical mind. No, I work. think that's uh, probably from Scientific American. Across North America and the world, cities have bulldozed their waterways into submission. Seattle was guilty as any until 1999, when the U.S. Department of Interior listed the Chinook salmon as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. We have some salmon up north in California. Mm -hmm that are uh, threatened right now. Mm -hmm. That legally obligated the city to help the salmon when undertaking any new a capital project that would affect the fish. Engineers trying to improve Seattle's ailing streams began to reintroduce some curves. This is their idea of fixing up the river. Put in some curves, put in some boulders and tree trunks, and create a more natural habitat. Sounds like they were doing it like Disney would or something. Yeah, yeah, you know, just exactly. make it look that way. Yeah, exactly. But the salmon did not return. In, <laughs> you're, you're not fooling like, the salmon. Uh, yeah. I don't know who you think you're fooling, but the salmon aren't taken in by this. In 2004, biologist Catherine Lynch was sitting through yet another meeting on how to solve these problems. This one held by her employer, Seattle Public Utilities, when she had an epiphany. Maybe restoration projects were failing because they were overlooking a little-known feature damaged by urbanization, the stream's gut. A stream is a system. It includes not just the water coursing between the banks. I guess that's the way we thought it was back then. Mm -hmm. But the earth, life, and water around and under it. Mm -hmm. Lynch had been tracking discoveries about a layer of wet sediment, small stones, and tiny creatures just below the stream bed called the hyperreic zone, a term from the Greek, Greek hypo, meaning under, like you get a hypodermic mm -hmm. under your skin, but this is under the flow or rheus. Stream water filters down into this layer, mixing with the groundwater, pushing up, Water in the hyperreic zone flows downstream like the surface water above it, but in orders of magnitude more slowly. Yeah. Because it's got all that dirt and stuff to go through. Right. For a large river, the hyperreic zone can be dozens of feet deep and can extend up to a mile laterally wow. beyond the banks. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot of area that we were just blocking out with these concrete 
impediments. Right. It keeps the waterway healthy by regulating critical physical, biological, and chemical processes, the hyperreic zone does, including riverbed aeration, water oxygenation, temperature moderation, pollution cleanup, and food creation. Yeah. Some biologists compare the hyperreic zone to the human gut, complete with a microbiome. Others call it the liver of the river. <laughs> a healthy hyperreic zone is full of life. Water welling up from below brings oxygen to salmon eggs laid in the riverbed, and right. that was the problem they right. were addressing. Right. After lobbying by Lynch, Seattle's public utilities began to restore Seattle streams, focusing on the hyperreic zone and discontinuing the channelizing of the streams. Yeah. Well, we do that with streams all the time. It, we don't even realize there's streams sometimes. We just know there's water there. We put in a concrete pipe, and that completely destroys the hyperreic zone in that area. Right. Now the reconstruction in the Seattle's rivers is bringing nearly dead urban streams back to productive life. There you go. That's a nice story. It is a nice story, and one of the other benefits of doing that is you're also replenishing the groundwater. You're allowing it to seep down into the aquifers, which is good for us. The problem with all of the reforms that need to be made, which I completely agree with, and there have been some steps uh, in that direction by L.A. County Public Works. I was working there for a while. They've been basically trying to achieve that in places like Glendale Narrows, yeah. They've been working on that, but the pro one of the problems is, is when it comes to waterways, there's always, almost always, multiple jurisdiction. Over the overarching jurisdiction of our waterways in this Southern California and around the country, is the Army Corps of Engineers. Yeah. Very bureaucratic, very slow to to move, and then you have county control, and then you have city control, and then sometimes you have water district control over water, the flow of water. So it's a it's a multi pronged issue, but it, the momentum is in the direction of de-channelizing, yeah, and good. it's moving in the right direction. And that, is the, that is the goal moving forward. And also, the one other thing, and it's just human beings, we cannot seem to get out of our own way. Cement is among the most toxic for the environment. It yeah. releases yeah. more carbon into the atmosphere than almost so many other things. I don't know if anything, I mean, there's probably something that's worse. From just about anything we'd use to channelize yeah. there. Yeah, cement's the worst thing we could be doing. Yeah. So on many levels, it's a good idea to be de-channelizing and yeah. allow nature to, to, nature wants to heal itself and let's give it the opportunity. Maybe just because there's land there, we shouldn't build on it. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's mm -hmm. right. From the New York Times, as long as there's been marine life, there has been marine snow. A ceaseless drizzle of this and that sinking from the surface into the depths of the sea. You've seen that. Don't <laughs> take underwater shots and you always see this kind of, you know, through the filtered sunlight often, you'll right, see things right, floating right, down. Right. For eons, the debris has contained the same things, flecks from plant and animal carcasses, feces, mucus, dust, microbes, viruses, and trans the ocean's carbon to be stored on the seafloor. That's what this has done, the uh, marine snow. Increasingly, increasingly, however, marine snowfall is being infiltrated by microplastics. And this appears to be altering our planet's ancient cooling process. Every year, tens of millions of tons of plastic enter Earth's oceans, 
Scientists used to think that this material was destined to float in garbage patches and gyres. That we used to think that. We're not that lucky, apparently. Yeah, but surface surveys have accounted for only about 1% of the ocean's estimated plastic in these gyres. Uh -huh. A uh, recent model found that 99.8% of plastic that entered the ocean since 1950 had sunk below the first few hundred feet of the ocean. Scientists have found 10,000 times more microplastics on the seafloor than in contaminated surface waters. 10,000 times more. These microplastic can host so many microbial hitchhikers that they counteract the natural buoyancy of the plastic. This is interesting here, mm -hmm. but if that bio, but if the biofilms that degrade on the way down, the plastic could float back up. So it degrades. The plastic goes back up, potentially leading to a yo-yoing purgatory of microplastics in the water column. This potential change of speed of the marine snow could have vast implications for how the ocean captures and stores carbon. And, and the ocean is our last best hope for yeah. capturing carbon at this point. Uh, it is, I, and there is, we've talked about it before, and that is the idea that the ocean will reach a limit that it will no longer be able to absorb carbon based on its condition. Yeah. And that is catastrophic. Yeah, and the microplastics were, might be making it worse. Yeah. Faster snowfalls, marine snowfalls, mm -hmm could store more microplastics in the deep ocean, whereas slower snowfalls could make the plastic-laden particles more available to predators, potentially starving food webs down deeper. So we're doing a lot of harm to it. Not only the animals, but our ability to capture carbon. All this could seed the deep ocean with even more carbon mm -hmm. and alter the ocean's biological pump, which helps regulate the climate. Uh, Which means we're pretty much, yeah. That's yeah. right, Mahler. Any, yeah, Mahler. I, any, any time, Mahler. I know, Mahler. You're gonna be gone, Mahler. Anytime we have these stories, it's gonna be gone by the time all of the. Why do you say that to him? He just said it. He doesn't sorry. have a concept. Yeah, of that's death. true. That's sorry, Mahler. You'll be here. Don't worry. You'll always be with us. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Mahler. But just the idea that, that these things take a long time to develop and become the issue that they are means it'll take a long time for them to not be the issue they are. And we're not doing anything much anyway to address yeah. that issue. Yeah. From the New Republic, we live in an era when labor is losing ground to capital. Traditionally, labor income accounted for about 70% of national income and capital, about 30%. Now they're very nearly even, with labor share down to 57% in the United States. Capital is gobbling up more dollars even as its taxes go down. In 2018, the average effective tax rate on capital was, for the first time in U.S. history, lower than the average effective tax rate on labor. This is very 20th, 21st century right here. Before 2000, we knew that rising income equality was a problem, but we could comfort ourselves that this was driven by a divergence in labor income. In other words, equality was just a matter of who, who you was, were paying, yeah, who was making the most money. Since 2000, the main driver of income inequality has been rising capital income. 
real estate, it turns out, plays an outsized role in capital displacing labor income, accounting for fully 15% of the rise in its share of national income since the start of this century. And in 2021, houses earned more money than people. The median rise in home values was $52,667. The median wage for, the full -time, for a full-time worker was about $50,000. So it's not by much, but it used to be uh, from 70-30 was the breakdown. Yeah. In other words, say, say $70,000 against $30,000. For, you know, uh, labor had the upper hand there. Right. That's never happened before in the U.S., and it's not good. Inanimate objects should not bring home bigger paychecks than human beings. Right. Especially Homes. in the world we live in now, where the the chances of something happening yeah. to that asset are are bad, something bad happening, are greater than they've probably ever been. Yeah. Well, and it. How can anybody get into yeah. earning more money if work isn't <laughs> the way in. Yeah. You have to already have capital. Right, right. Um, yeah. yeah. Home prices surged last year, but this displacement coincided with a labor shortage. Had labor been more plentiful in 2021, houses would have out-earned people by even more. Houses out-earned humans in no fewer than 25 of 38 major metropolitan areas surveyed, happened in Nashville and Albuquerque and San Antonio, not just the big areas, not the big areas like San Francisco. You'd expect maybe homes would out-earn. Barring a bust in the housing market, the trend will likely continue until workers acquire meaningful power in this economy, like unionizing, yeah, and like there's, what just and happened with Amazon. Exactly, and the support by polling the support for unions has not been this high since near the end of World War II yeah. in terms of its power, its its popularity. Yeah. So maybe we're seeing this. You know, once again, you know, the real estate business, the real estate industry has brought this economy to its knees. How many times have we been on the brink of a real catastrophe? How many times does this have to happen before we start to get the idea that real estate needs to be regulated? Real estate needs to be brought into some kind of regulatory um, agency. I don't know what it is, but this will destroy the economy again. From WKRN Nashville. Tennessee Republicans are moving forward with a bill that would eliminate age requirements for marriage in the state. Oh, I saw it. Yeah. Yeah, the bill HB 233 would establish common law marriage between one man and one woman. Yeah. That's what they're concerned about. Yeah. But it allow uh, no minimum age for marriage. That's all I got to say. Yeah. I don't know exactly what Tennessee Republicans are thinking. A lot of states don't have a limit, but they were so intent on doing one man, one woman yeah. that they overlooked the fact that they could have had an opportunity to raise the minimum wage, but they didn't want to go there. Right. God knows why. There is a cultural bias against restricting when men can marry women. Baseball is back, Mike. Yeah. Opening day was yesterday. Yes. And this season, besides the Otani rule and the universal designated hitter, yes. Major League Baseball will permit pitchers and catchers to relay signals via electronic devices. 
Use of the gadgets to coordinate pitch selection between pitcher and catcher would supposedly make it harder for opposing teams to steal signals yeah. unless they can get on the bandwidth yeah, and figure out the code, yeah, yeah. which has been a huge issue, the stealing mm -hmm. signs, ever since the Houston Asterisks cheated their way <laughs> to a World Series win over the Dodgers. The system developed by Pitchcom works by allowing players to exchange signals using a minimal amount of technology. A transmitter with buttons the catcher wears on his wrist. Uh, I guess it's going to be the wrist with the glove because you're not going to be able to push buttons with a glove hand. So you'll see them reaching over by the glove and pushing buttons. Yeah. And then the pitcher and all the infielders will be able to wear these helmets too. Yeah. Maybe the outfielders too eventually, but infielders will be wearing them for positioning. Pitchers will be wearing it to hear, hear what the next pitch is. Now, if I was the other team, I would jam that up. Yeah. Or maybe send in another little signal to change the, the pitch. So the catcher is <laughs> expecting like a, a curve yeah. and he gets a fastball. <laughs> Wild pitch. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not a Luddite. I understand technology is impacting our lives in so many different ways and in yeah. sports and all that. And sometimes it's a good thing. But I'm going to be the old man on get off my lawn guy on this one. I, I don't know why. There's I, something fun about watching them throw down the, the exactly. signs. Exactly. You know? And maybe that will get stolen and there'll be an uproar yeah. from, you know, there'll be a bench clearing brawl because somebody on second base was signaling yeah. the batter. That's I like part that. of the fun. It to me. is. It's not the brawl, but it's just the idea yeah. that there's this kind of tension underneath it all, where exactly. the signals are out there for people to see. Yeah. What, what's the first base co coach going to do? The third base coach going to do? Yeah, yeah. Is he's not? He's going to have signals. Is he going to be texting over to first base? <laughs> I don't know. Also, yeah. more gadgets this season. Yeah. Umpires will have mics. This yeah. one I like. Yeah. This one I think is great, actually. It, okay. uh, they can tell the fans what the hell they're doing. Okay. You'd go to a game. Yeah. There'd be some time out, and 50,000 people are s just yeah. sitting there wondering for minutes and minutes, yeah. what the hell's going on? What just happened? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, now the umpire... Yeah. Are going no, to no, have no, uh, yeah, uh, a mic and be able to tell you what's yeah. going on and why they made the decision. Remember, a few years ago, there was the it was a playoff game, and yeah. somebody had gone up the first baseline, and whether or not he veered into the oh yeah, uh, yeah, the, yeah remember yeah. they stood there at the, by the dugout well for like fifteen minutes, yeah. trying to figure out what they and were going to do. Nobody knew exactly what and, they were even what even the issue was. Right, yeah. exactly. So yes, that's a good thing. But but I'd love to hear that microphone on when, I don't know if it would have been Lasorda, some colorful yeah. manager, Sparky Anderson, would have run up to the, uh, uh, the home plate. Cursing. Umpire, cursing like a sailor. Yeah. yeah, like a drunken sailor, yeah. I guess for what it's worth, umpire crew chief Ted Barrett delivered the first Major League Replay Review public address mic call during Monday's Angels-Dodgers Spring Training Freeway Series in Los Angeles. Oh, cool. We got our local here. Yeah. Barrett announced a replay review decision after Angels manager Joe Madden unsuccessfully challenged home plate umpire Mark Ripperger's hit by pitch call during Dodger hitter Chris Taylor's at-bat. Oh, there you go. Yeah. From the Washington Post. The House passed legislation that would remove marijuana from the federal schedule of controlled substances the measure H.R. 3617 is known as the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, Ooh. or MORE Act. The 220-204 vote largely took place along partisan lines, with only three Republicans joining most Democrats to back the legislation. 
Two Democrats voted no. That was Chris Pappas of New Hampshire and Henry Cooler of Texas. Mm -hmm. It remains unclear whether the latest measure will receive a vote in the Senate. We don't even know what Biden will do, although he'll probably do something. He's moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. he, he wasn't going there before. In addition to eliminating criminal penalties for the manufacture, distribution, and possession of marijuana, the Moore Act would provide for the regulation and taxation of legal cannabis sales. It would also provide for the expungement of federal marijuana convictions dating to 1971 and bar the denial of federal public benefits or security clearances on the basis of marijuana offenses. Representative Gerald Nadler, you remember Jerry Nadler? Yeah, Jerry yeah. Nadler. Yeah. The legislation's main sponsor said his bill would set up new path forward and would begin to correct some of the injustices of the last 50 years. Republicans countered by dismissing the legislations as a waste of time and arguing that Democrats should instead be addressing other issues, well, like freedom and pedophilia. <laughs> and finally, from Euronews. A Swedish Supreme Court judge was convicted of shoplifting. And Christine Lindblad, the 67-year-old judge, was fined 50,000 kroner. That's about $5,600 after she was caught red-handed in a grocery store in central Stockholm shortly before Christmas. In addition to ham and meatballs, a traditional Swedish New Year's Eve dish, Lindblad tried to steal sausages and cheese. The judge, who had served on Sweden's Supreme Court for two decades, resigned from her post in February and vowed to spend her retirement years searching for a Supreme Court justice who loves beer as much as she loves meatballs. <laughs> you can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.